Hey, FFR listeners. If you love getting to listen in on our convos each week, consider helping us keep bringing our signature brand of feminist pop culture analysis to you by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash femfreak. You can get early access, exclusive bonus episodes, participate in AMAs, join our friendly Discord server, and more. That's patreon.com slash femfreak. See you there. The tension amps up as we pray that he gets his gun. And I just thought, like, I hate this. I hate that I'm being in the position of wanting that cop to get his gun and be able to use lethal force in this moment. You know, I absolutely hate it. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm joined today by two people who voted for Robert Redford's sixth term as president. <laughs> Carolyn Pettit. Yep. And Ebony Adams. Hey. <laughs> Hi. We <laughs> Rob, cut that out. There's nothing in the script about what we're going to talk about, and apparently I don't know how to speak off script. This week, we're going to be talking about the first episode of HBO's new Watchmen. But before we get to that, we're going to have some intro banter because that's what the script calls for. This is going to be especially awkward today because Anita and I are actually sitting across from and each Ebony's other. And Ebony's not making eye contact with me at all. weird. I'm not comfortable. <laughs> I was actually thinking, like, should we position the chairs this way so that we don't have to awkwardly stare at each other? <laughs> this is going to be a learning experience. It is. But your hair looks great today. Thank you. It's one of my favorite fall wigs. I'll take a picture and send it to y'all. Yeah, do that. Carolyn, how is San Francisco treating you? Oh, fine. You know, it's uh, fine. It's just fine. Yeah. You know? Great. Well, yeah. I guess you're not in San Francisco, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but I've, I've been spending a, a good amount of time in San Francisco recently. You know what? This past Friday, they, they in uh, Do- Do- Mission Dolores Park, they had a screening of the film Hocus Pocus on a Shut big, up! Did you I, go? They did on a big inflatable movie screen. They had movie oh. night in the park, and I went to that. And uh, I tried to convince Ebony to do a Hocus Pocus episode, and she was like, "Hell no, burn it down." I mean, I just—that's uh, not precisely what I said, <laughs> but I'll tell you what. So I had the idea to um, have a craft night at work and make people bring in crafts to work on it while we watched the craft. But then it turns Don't out you hate the craft like with a I dying do. passion. I really do, um, and that's probably that's why I wanted to watch it with this group of badass women so I could look around the room and decide who you know, was going to take down. <laughs> But anyways, we decided to watch Hocus Pocus um, instead, but we were too busy crafting and I was too busy learning how to knit to really pay attention. So I was like, oh, I won't really be able to talk about Hocus Pocus. Have we talked about knitting before? Is this new for you? I've tried to learn several times, but I don't practice enough to remember, so I always mm. have to relearn. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, anyways, I'm, whatever. I uh, I do knitting and crocheting, but I also just started embroidering, and I finished oh. another little embroidery thing with these wow. little plants. I learned how to do French knots. It was very fun. That's cool. I'm looking for something I can do with my hands, but I'm not yet good enough to be able to do it while I watch TV, which is the whole point of why yeah. I want to do it. Totally. Anyway. Yep, I got gotcha. you. Uh, hobbies. Trying to find hobbies. Mm, crafts. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into this. Um Okay, we're this intro is going to be a little big because I think that the context of this new show is a little historical in some ways because it comes from a comic, it also was another movie, and now it's a TV show. So, let's do this. In 
1986 and 1987, DC Comics published Watchmen, a critically acclaimed series that was praised for looking at superheroes in a bold new way and posing the kinds of moral and ethical questions about power and authority that superhero comics rarely asked. Ten years ago, the original Watchmen storyline was adapted into a film by director Zack Snyder. Boo! (laughs) I need a come in. (laughs) I'm like, I need a sound effects button. (laughs) Now, Damon Lindelof, whose shows include Lost and The Leftovers, is helming an all-new Watchmen TV series for HBO. Set in an alternate universe present day, the series uses the events of the original comic series as its basis, but focuses on new characters and a new threat. In the world of the show, police wear masks to hide their identities. Regina King stars as Detective Angela Abar who assumes the identity of Sister Knight as she works to thwart a white supremacist group known as the Seventh Calvary. In this clip, we hear Abar and Police Chief Judd Crawford, played by Don Johnson, discussing their unorthodox law enforcement methods. Can I say one thing to start? Actually, I have several things to start. Well, I'm going to play a clip first. You want to do that before I do this? Go ahead. Is it related? Uh, it's related to what you just said, which is that one of the people I watched this with today said that one of the things that drove her the absolute nuttiest was people mixing up cavalry and cavalry. Did I just do that? Uh-huh. Shit! <laughs> <laughs> but they do it in the show constantly. Do they? Well, yeah. you know I don't know how to pronounce words. That's okay. I don't know how I'm a host of things that doesn't know how to speak. Karen, I don't know either. And you know what? You know it me. might be time for a coup. It might... So so it's not cavalry. It's not cavalry. It's cavalry. Cavalry. Yeah, cavalry is the proper name of the hill that Jesus died on, or is reputed to have died on. Jesus. All right, here's a short clip. (laughs) There was a cavalry involved shooting last night. You're gonna give me the speech now? What speech? I should calm down, take a breath before we're at war again. No. There's a guy in my trunk. Delightful. Delightful. All right. Before we get into our discussion, we should probably mention that while two episodes of Watchmen will have aired, maybe three, we're still deciding when this episode's coming out. Uh, by the time this particular Feminist Frequency Radio episode is released, at the time of this recording, only the first episode is out. That was a very long-winded way of just saying that we're only talking about the first episode. Right. So I chose that clip out of the trailer because I thought it was like tonally really on on like uh, the style of what this show was doing, what the first episode was doing, like this sort of cavalier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we should only use words that start with oh, yeah. the cuss sound. Oh boy, that just opened up this a whole... This is going to be a ripe one, folks. Yeah, um, yeah I, I felt like that, like the, the, the sort of like, you know, law enforcement, you know, no, nah, you think I'm going to tell you to not do the horrible vigilante thing, but we're going to do the vigilante thing. And like, it's kind of, there's a right. romanticism of it. Well, it's interesting because as I was watching the show, I was thinking, you know, I mean, the the obviously the 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 seventh ca- uh, cavalry, the evil, you know, white supremacist uprising that we see happening is very bad, and like they need to be stopped. And yet, like, you know, I kept thinking that. Um, I mean, in, in real life, like the militarization of the police and like the 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 police using excessive force and those kinds of things, it isn't bad just because the targets of that militarization and excessive force are often, you know, 
protesters or just or just people of color or you know innocent whatever people who don't really deserve that it's it's bad in and of itself and it's like so i sort of hope that the series as it goes on you know delves into that a bit more and doesn't because i did feel like this first episode it was sort of like oh oh sister knight is using enhanced interrogation on this guy and she gets the useful information that she needs and then they go to the place where the cavalry is and like, yay, it worked, right? Like her beating the shit out of that guy to get information. Like, I mean, I knew that that would be an element in Watchmen because that's the kind of story that Watchmen is, but I'm still concerned about how that aspect of it is going to be framed as the show evolves. Yeah. I want to say a couple of things. One, without even realizing it, I've been waiting my whole life for Regina King to be a superhero. Sure. And this show delivers in this amazing way. And I think it's, it is interesting and I think important that this first episode is directed by a woman. Um, I think there are some really key um, ways that Regina King is shot. Um, I think both when she's kicking someone's ass, just the kind of like kinetic power um, that she demonstrates in those scenes is is amazing. But also I think crucially in the sex scene, um, it's very interesting to me that it is not, we don't see much of her body. We see considerably more of her husband's body. It's just very interestingly shot. So anyways, Regina King, all in. Second thing is, I had to laugh at this show suggesting <laughs> that the police are the protection from rather than the source of white supremacist violence and menace. Mm. <laughs> like It is hilarious to me. But I think I want to go back to the very beginning of this episode. So by the time this episode of Fem Freak Radio comes out, like two, three episodes. All right. So you know what? Fuck it. We're going to spoil some shit. The opening of this episode is quite interesting. So it starts with a um, silent film, a silent film that does not exist, but does in fact feature a real-life person, Bass Reeves, a black man who was a former slave and was um, just this kind of larger-than-life, iconic black lawman who actually um, served as the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. What then happens is that we move from this silent film in which Bass Reeves, as this black lawman, takes down this white exemplar of the law, but also protects him from mob justice, to then what we think initially is an empty theater. It is revealed to have a sole occupant, this tiny, adorable young black child who's captivated by this Western, um, and his mother is playing the music alongside this. We immediately that, that scene of tranquility is immediately disrupted. We see the mother crying and then mayhem erupts and we're situated right in the horror of the Tulsa race riots of 1921. And this, yes, mob violence, this, this racist mob violence um, that then gets like, it's so interesting to me that this show is set in Tulsa, for instance, Right not New York or LA or Chicago, which are, you know, sites that we're more accustomed to seeing this kind of like racialized violence, um, you know, depicted in our media. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And I'm just fascinated by the way this is, this is framed um, and the ways that there are calls, calls back to um, these like 
structural, systematic suppressions of of black people. So I just wanted to start there because I think as as much as I think this show from what I can tell in this first episode is doing quite a lot and it hasn't quite earned enough currency for me to totally buy in. I do think there's a lot of material that might pay out. Um, if you've never heard of the Tulsa race riots, you aren't alone. I actually hadn't even heard of mm-hmm. it and I consider myself pretty educated on these sorts of topics. So we're going to link a couple of, yeah. of things just to get folks caught up if you're not familiar. Um, Cause it's uh, like a really notable um, like white mob attacking like fairly, pro- like fa- fairly wealthy because there it, it was, was the so, yeah it was called yeah, yeah it's called it's like, like it the, the black, of black Wall Street, Wall Street. yeah, yeah. The and so black community and it's in the sort US of been erased from the history of mm-hmm. um of sort of black struggle in in you know white dominated textbooks in our education system. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that so it, it's very clear that the the big bad of this show is white supremacist and this white supremacist group. There's a quote from Lindelof um, that I want to share that says, as, as he was adapting this, the original story, which was about the nuclear war because it was in the 80s, um, he says, what's the equivalent now of impending nuclear war? What's creating the big cultural anxiety? For me, it's the anxiety of a reckoning. Uh, the identification of white supremacy as a bad guy in a superhero comic book that could not be defeated. The Klan wears masks, but why are its members never the villains in a superhero story? Those ideas felt like natural fits for Watchmen. I thought that was kind of interesting as his sort of framing about why this story is taking place in the way it's taking place. Although it's uh, the the history of um, superheroes in this country, then like we would point out that part of the reason why the KKK um, sort of decreased in prominence was because of the ways that, oh God, I'm blanking on his name now. But this, remember, was it? This FBI agent was able to get the writers of Superman when it was broadcast as radio serials to insert the KKK as villains on the show. This is in the 30s and 40s. Um, And so as they became more laughable in pop culture, their influence started to wane. So I thought it was a callback to that, actually. Oh, uh, you I know, also didn't know that. Apparently, I don't know anything. <laughs> That's all right. It? I'm here sitting right in front I'm of so you glad to give you the here. info, right? Uh, part of what's interesting to me about how the white supremacist group in this show is presented to is that it seems to me to be a reaction or a response in a way to discourse around the original Watchmen and, and Watchmen mm-hmm. as, uh, and the film, Zack Snyder's film, because specifically the way that a lot of people did not understand that Rorschach is kind of a fucking bad guy and like right. not a hero to be you know, admired and emulated because the uh, the Seventh Cavalry fully embraces Rorschach, right? They the way that they, when they're in their rallies and things, they wear these imitation Rorschach masks. They they absolutely um, celebrate and admire. Like Rorschach is sort of their you know patron saint in a way, and the rhetoric that they use is. I think Lindelof and, you know, his team of, of writers um, was very deliberately trying to mirror um, a lot of like far right, you know, uh, talk that we hear in our timeline of like, 
you know, there's a one point where that we hear we hear them in a rally say things something like, you know, the streets will be flooded with like liberal tears or whatever, you know, this kind right. of like online, like, you know, the online alt right uh, extremist rhetoric. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that the show is is very much almost saying to previous viewers of Watchmen, those who maybe didn't really view it critically or think about it critically. Like if you thought Rorschach was like cool, you didn't fucking get it. Like you, you were completely wrong. Like he's not supposed to be seen that way. Well, I think like the allure of the iconoclast of the lone wolf figure is so strong in Western media that it is very easy for, you know, readers to have been seduced by what Rorschach represented, right? I mean, first of all, like if you've if you've read the original Watchmen graphic novels, you know, it is because Rorschach chooses, you know, to he makes it his mission to solve the murder of the comedian that that sort of inciting incident become something for the second generation of the Minutemen, right? Like he has this very perverted sense of justice, but it is a sense of justice that's not necessarily demonstrated by other people in the text. And so I think, you know, it's it's easy for readers to have been seduced by this, you know, this figure of like this guy who's who's going against the powers that be to speak truth to power and conveniently forget what a like horrific misogynist he is, you know, what was just like, yeah, horrible kind of like right wing blowhard. And like the reason why the um, the Seventh Cavalry has you know been the group that kind of took up his mantle is remember like his journals that get sent off to a, a newspaper it's sent to like a right wing newspaper you know but people kind of forget that that's what happened. So in preparation to talk about mm-hmm. this, I started just reading articles to try to make sense of the comic and movie and the relation mm-hmm. to this and how people were Did reacting to it. No, and I yeah. like I was so like okay, I would be fucking lost. Yeah. If I hadn't read the... And, and I was. And I also aggressively didn't like the movie when it came mm-hmm. out. And so, and I don't remember it. Like, I just remember not liking it. So I'm coming yeah. into this with this already tainted, like, mm-hmm. this is a universe that I... I have not liked before, but I also I love Regina King. And so I will totally, I'll, I'll totally watch things with her in it. So I, I think that for me, I kind of, I stopped reading some of those articles and I stopped trying to make sense of it because the reality is that the majority of people who are going to watch the show are not going to have read the comics. Mm-hmm. They may or may not have seen the movie and they're not going to read all of the lore around it. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's an interesting place as a media critic to sit when you're trying to, or for for me specifically in the way that I look at media to like, what is the average viewer going to take away from this? What right. is the average viewer looking at this with? Um, you know, there's loads of articles about how HBO released a series of PDF documents that sort of yeah. explain more. And I almost started reading them and I was like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm like, I want to know what the movie is presenting to us. And we talked to, or the show, sorry. And we talked about this with Star Trek, right? Like I just, mm-hmm. not that I, I just never got around to watching the shorts, which give backstory, but I'm very interested in like, what is the oh majority God, of the population to the disco free cast are freaking out right now. <laughs> they know we've talked about that. Um, so, so here's the thing is I, I'm going into it kind of being like, okay, what is this text telling me right now in this context, which is clearly a deep political statement is being released in a time um, that is is commenting on a thing, right? Is commenting on our, our social... In, a very, in the very week in which the president of this country likened his treatment to a lynching. Oh, boy. I hope that's somebody's freak out this Girl. week. <laughs> so, like, 
I my initial reactions is I really didn't like this. I did not enjoy watching it. I would not want to watch it again. I will because I think it's important. It's going to be an important thing to know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I have a rule that you don't judge a show an entire show by one episode. Like it's just, it needs to find its footing, right? Mm -hmm. You need to give it a little bit of breathing room. Um, But there's little things that, you know, are, are interesting choices that are made. Right. So like the, the black cop gets shot by a white dude. Girl, listen, listen, even though there's the race swapping of roles that's (laughs) done there again, I had to laugh because I was like, how you going to have, this race swap situation, but the black dude is still the one that ends up dead. Right. <laughs> like, what the yeah. fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, so, so then like, there's just little things like there was the black parents with the white kid. Like, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just like, they're clearly trying to say things about race. It's mm-hmm. a very intentional casting. Um, you have the croissant bakery that she has with the fucking Soviet inspired sign, mm-hmm. right? Like, which feels like a little ode to the the book or the comics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the American hero story, Minutemen, like that whole thing. Like if we know anything about like, are we celebrating the Minutemen in this world, even though they're trying to fight white supremacists? Like, what is that? Like I was, I was kind of confused about the footing that I'm supposed to take that I'm supposed to take away from what I watched. Right. If that I think sense. so. One of the, I watched this with a group of uh, women, women of color, which was, great for me um because just going back real quickly to the beginning i was very emotional watching the scene of the riot um i wound up actually watching it twice and cried both times it was very difficult and that would have been hard for me to do in a room with all white people um but the one of the people i watched with was like this feels like more setup than story because they're trying to pack so much in. And I think, like you, she has not read the original graphic novels. And so she was trying to absorb everything that was necessary. And, you know, not even talking about like the Easter eggs, you know, for, for fans, right? But just trying to get situated in it. And feel she liked the episode and she's very much on board, you know, with watching future episodes. But she did kind of feel like there's a lot here that I don't know. And I feel like maybe I should have prepared myself in a way which you shouldn't um, have to do right right? i I don't know that everyone in that room felt the same um but in her mind this was very she called it a very hbo show like very hbo is very interested in kind of these high concept shows right now and just in this particular instance she was like i feel like there's more here i'm excited to learn how they unpack it um but she did come away feeling like god i wish i had known more a little bit more about the world i think that it's a real challenge given a show where the world building is going to be as intricate and complex uh, as it clearly is in a show like this, um, uh, you know, beginnings, right? Like bringing new people into the fold. Um, I mean, like, so there's a scene for instance, where it, it rains squid. Right. And like, I, I think that, I do think this show wants people who aren't familiar with the comic, with the graphic novel to, to, you know, to, to be okay, like not understanding everything to be like, okay, I have no idea what the fuck that was, but I'm going to stick around and let the world building take its course over the next several episodes until I finally feel situated in this world. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know. It just, to me, it's, it's, I'm just saying that I sympathize with the challenge of like a show that is, 
that is set in 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 the kind of alternate timeline that this show is set in. And I and like I actually I mean like probably the world building is at this point the aspect of the show that I enjoyed the most. Like just for instance um, you know, you you get these little throwaway references to the fact that Robert Redford is president. Right. And in fact, like white supremacists uh, hate Redford because he has done things to address to attempt to address the nation's history of, you know, racial violence and injustice. And so you see like in one of the. Um, the I think, you know, the, the little like Seventh Cavalry community or something. There's like fuck Redford is like spray painted uh, somewhere. But like what I thought was really interesting was that, um, as, you know, Regina King is doing like a little show and tell at her kid's school. Right. And a kid asks like, and she mentions her bakery, which is actually a secret like hero hideout like you know this really cool like secret hero hideout but like whatever it's a bakery and the kid asks like uh, this white kid this racist white kid is like did you pay for it with redfordations which is like perfect like if if robert you know in the in our timeline we have like obamacare or whatever if robert redford were president and he passed reparations people right. <laughs> who people who hated robert redford and hated the idea of reparations would absolutely call them redfordations so i just they thought totally like that would. it's just like this this perfect little you know, little like tiny detail that kind of tells you a, a lot about like the the history of the of the world, like in a, in a really economical way. So it does, yeah. I mean, there's that that um, poster in the classroom, right? That's like the four important presidents, and I think it's like Washington, JFK, Nixon, and Robert Redford. Yep, <laughs> you know, and just that visual right there, you know, again tells you something. Uh, I think that. So it seems to me like the show is setting itself up to, you know, like to masked, masked people are bad, right? And the show kind of is, I think what they're going to say is like, no matter who wears a mask, it's a problem. So whether it's the cops or whether it's these evil people, like the white supremacists in this case, like, I think it's going to set it up to complicate the police a little bit, although it doesn't feel like it right now. Like I... That's the sense I get from this kind of thing where like, you know, like, let's look at a systemic look at it feels a little HBO like that. They're going to hopefully do something like that. But to me, um, it's so it, it, I'm sort of I guess I'm sort of hoping it goes in that direction, even though that's I wouldn't really enjoy that show either. I think right now it's very glamorizing of the cops and of the good people fighting I mean, the bad people. Yeah. And and so, like, the thing is. You have um, you have Regina King's character, like I don't remember if it was Carolyn or Ebony who said this, but that she tortures someone and she gets results. Like torture doesn't get results. It like it is proven that it's not. It's a fucking horrible practice. But we have so much media that it encourages and shows that. So even if the show was trying to comment on that fact, it failed. Because we're so saturated as a society in our media of that being a normal thing. And she looks like a badass and she's got that long jacket and she's like, like, you can't help but be seduced by her, even though the whole time I'm really troubled by the exchange between all of the like the secrecy of the police and and having to hide themselves to protect themselves. And like the the um, what's the word I'm looking for to describe the the like. 
you know, they're, they're, they're the right people doing the bad things for the reasons, like that kind of idea. The show absolutely demands that we trust the police. So in this um, opening scene with the cop who gets shot and the, um, the like, country white dude who's listening to Future on this, you know, back-ass <laughs> Oklahoma road. And, you know, we see this white driver model what black drivers are told to do. You know, put your hands on the wheel, be, be very deferential, um, you know, don't make any sudden moves. If you have to reach for something, clearly signal that. And we know um, that in our world, that's not enough. You cannot act respectable enough for someone to acknowledge your humanity. Um, but it's interesting that the show doesn't show this white person falling victim to the same thing that that black people often do in that situation. Um, but also, we are put into the position of sympathizing with this person that we later learn is a white supremacist <laughs> and a murder, but we don't know that yet. What we see is this cop um, sort of exercising his authority and being kind of a dick, right? And we don't know yet why cops wear masks. So the fact that this person asks him, like, can I see your face, is to us in that moment a reasonable question. And I hated that then when the cop goes back to his cop car and asks for his gun to be released, we are put in the position of trusting his perception of the threat level because we don't yet know what he saw. I mean, we saw like kind of the hints of the Rorschach mask, right? But when he says like, I'm very concerned, I think, you know, my uh, threat level is high. I'm pretty sure, you know, alcohol, whatever. Like we are asked to trust his perception of, of the threat. Um, and the tension amps up as we pray that he gets his gun. And I just thought, like, I hate this. I hate that I'm being in the position of wanting that cop to get his gun and be able to use lethal force in this moment. You know, I absolutely hate it. And that and like that, that scene, I think, is a really good example of my concern with the entire show mm -hmm. of like, you know, we talked about how the race roles are reversed um, and it, like, so are black people in power in this, this world? I'm like, because if the president this, the is white, of this. it's it is confusing. And like to me, it feels a little bit like. And again, it's the first episode. I will give it a chance and see where it goes. But like, it feels like they're just trying to be like contrary to be like, isn't this interesting? Like, isn't it cool if it's different, but then we're mixing metaphors here. And like, there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And like, we're all the I mean, same. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, to me, it just seemed like a world in which more, in which a little more has been overtly done. Like a little bit more has been overtly done to try to address white supremacy as like a, as like a, 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 a a systemic cultural issue. Um, I guess I was, I was expecting having seen the black police officer and then seeing launching immediately into that all black production of Oklahoma <laughs> and that primarily black audience until we see Don Johnson, what's his name? Judd Crawford in the show until we actually see him and Francis Farmer. I thought, Yes, I thought that what we were going for there is that, oh, so the U.S. of this period is primarily black um, and that the 
uh, authority, the, the positions of authority that we traditionally associate with whiteness are now occupied by black people. And yes, it is very interesting if you want to unpack, like, just because a black person becomes a cop doesn't then negate, the, <laughs> you know, well, like the fucked upness uh, of the police. And there's other imagery, too. So, like, when you're in the cop precinct, or they're like they're watching the footage of the white supremacist, mm-hmm. you know, whatever as evidence for why they get to all unlock all their guns again. Which the whole that's an interesting thing to talk about. Maybe for the bonus yeah. is the locking gun and having to get approval for that. Um, but they're standing in formation, like it's very fascist, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's that those kinds of things are why I'm like, oh, they're going to go in this direction of. Like, they're also the bad guys, and everyone is fucking bad in some capacity, or, like, exploiting power or what have you. Um, because that symbolism we associate with Nazis, right? That symbolism we associate with, like, militant groups. But it's the police force that's doing it, and they're using it as a way to exploit their power, which was clearly taken, like, it was reined in at some point. Right. Well, I mean, the they were reined in, what is it, three years ago? There was, or, I'm not the yeah. white knight, the events of white knight. So like the seventh cavalry attacked and brutally murdered members of the police. And then I believe at, at that point, that's when cops started to be allowed to wear the masks to hide their, um, their identities, which, you know. And, yeah. and I'm guessing also at some point in there, their guns had to be like approved to open because, because that whole meeting gave mm-hmm. permission to unlock the, their weapons. Right. As a, like, it, it's like a, the fucking Patriot Act. What is like that Quick kind of question. thing? Quick question. If I start showing up in a dirty, hand-sewn panda head mask, is it going to be easier for you to listen to me or harder? Both. Yeah. It'll be a, bit, a little bit of both. You should try it and see what happens. I'm definitely going to try right. it. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. I'm into it. Listen, I did not hate this episode. I actually am excited to see the the next episode. As worried as I am, as concerned as I am, I was never, I was seduced by it. I was very excited. I want to know what's going on with Jeremy Irons. You know, I want to know what's going on with his possibly robot staff, including Ichabod Crane. Not happy with him not having a beard, whatever. (laughs) You know, I want to know what's going on with those baby squid that fall from the sky. The psychic squid. Yeah. That we don't know anything about. So, Carolyn. Yeah. Are you like, you're all probably going to watch more. Are you like excited to watch more? Where do you fall? I, I, you know, I, I want to give, I think that some ambiguity like thematically and ideologically is almost like inevitable in the first episode of a show like this that is trying, that has its sights set on, on exploring, you know, any larger questions with any amount of like depth and, and, and substance. I mean, I'm going to watch more because because it's a show that a lot of people are talking about because the issue because I think that the issues it's grappling with are important. And that if it gets that shit wrong, then that's like a, a real serious problem. But if it gets it right, like it could end up doing some really cool stuff. Um, but, you know, for me, like as a viewer, for my my own personal interest in the show right now is mostly, as I said, it's mostly like, um, you know, interest. I'm mostly drawn to it because of what f- ever fun I can derive from, like I said, from the world building and stuff like, like how are they going to show ways in which it, in which that this timeline, like, um, uh, is like 
similar yet different to ours. Like, you know, like, again, like Robert Redford is a figure there. He was a movie star, but he's president. Like, what other sort of little things can they work in that are like, oh, I see. It's it's that's from our timeline, but different there because of such and such. That's, you know, that's mostly what I'm going to keep watching for. And let's not forget Damon Lindelof made Lost. So, you know, take I'm all this with a grain Lost. of sand. Are you? I loved The Leftovers. So I have like, he has some, like, he has some credibility. It does. Well, he became my boy because of that show. You are not making good But it was decisions. also a good show. And there's I, a lot of great people on it. And what's her face? Regina King is on The Leftovers too. Um, oh, man, another real quick. You're not going to sucker me into watching that show. Yeah, um, Carol. With regard to world building, I also want to mention. So I did take a look at those documents that HBO put up on, you know. Oh, yeah. So, so the metafiction is, I think, that some like FBI agent or something is like leaking, you know, uh, do, do, important documents and things. But anyway, like one of the documents is a an essay about the film. Um, trust in the law the, that opens the, the the episode, right? The black and white film that's playing at the movie theater. And interestingly, in in the fiction of the of the show, Trust in the Law is a film by Oscar Michaud, and Oscar mm-hmm. Michaud mm-hmm. was an actual black, you know, filmmaker from that era. Right. Like, I think a lot of people don't even know that there even were black filmmakers in that era, but there were, there were black filmmakers, black theater owners, you know, and so mm-hmm. on. And, and Oscar Michaud was a, was an early, you know, black filmmaking pioneer. And so interestingly in the metafiction of the, of the, of the show's timeline, um, <coughs> trust in the law is an, is one of Oscar Michaud's, um, Films and it's it's interesting, like that the document kind of results in in the show being like a or having and like HBO is like doing meta commentary on their own show. So, yeah. for instance, um, I'll just read a tiny bit of that essay that uh, that is on the you know the, so the the in universe fictional essay. Um, it says um, it's you know it's hard to imagine. Um, it's hard to imagine audiences not being moved by Michaud's Bass Reeves, a wish fulfillment ideal of the way things ought to be, where there's liberty, justice, and opportunity for all, where respect exists for people of all colors and creeds. For them, the black marshal of the silver screen wasn't representative of the law. He was the redemption of it. So anyway, a lot of stuff going on there. Um, That's awesome. Can I just say one quick thing? I want to make sure that we say this in the main and not the bonus. Um, It is standard on HBO productions now. It is required to have an intimacy coordinator. So I just want to give a shout out to HBO for that. I actually noticed that they have the intimacy coordinator in the credits. um, And I just... I really congratulate them. I hope every studio, every production company follows their lead um, because on a show, any show, it's amazing. But on a show like this one, for those really difficult scenes, so, so great. Yeah. I have a lot of feelings about that. Because like when I learned about that role, you're like, wait, so they haven't had that this whole time? So yeah, we'll link that. There was a great article recently that we can link about intimacy coordinators. All right, we uh, are going to take a real quick break and then we will come back with our freakouts. Hey, Feminist Frequency Radio listeners. Why not join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash femfreak? Seriously, what are you waiting for? Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Ebony, 
What are your feelings? Because I'm looking right at you. Yep. (laughs) Right. So I actually am freaking out about another Damon Lindelof property, which is Lost. As I mentioned, I've been rewatching it. Listen, I think the first season of Lost. The first season was great until they introduced guns. Well, that happens pretty. I know. (laughs) But like, imagine I'm taking over your freak out. Imagine Lost that first season without guns. That would be a so much more interesting show. I can see that, although for me, the the specter of like violence that the guns represent, um, the the problem of the guns is located also in just a general character like Locke and his big ass knives. So, and even though I, I love and hate Locke equally, but anyways, I just I've been rewatching it. I've been uh, watching it with my boyfriend who has never seen it. Um, and so it's interesting watching it after all this time, obviously knowing what's going to happen, but just being delighted by the way that this show, Lost, slowly unfurled and how um, you you just felt as if you were on a ride. And yes, there were there were moments of frustration because you didn't know what was happening, but it was kind of a delicious frustration. Um, and you could participate in all of these extracurricular discussions about the show with other fans. You could go to the, you know, fake websites that ABC set up for the show, but you didn't need to, to enjoy it. Um, and so, but just the, the kind of very expansive, dense, multi-layering maze-like quality of the show at its best. I'm just really enjoying um, again. So yeah, I, I am looking forward to seeing more of Watchmen. I do, on the whole, think Damon Lindelof is incredibly, incredibly talented. Um, so, yeah, that's my freak out for the week. Cool. Carolyn, what are, what are your feelings this week? Uh, I am freaking out about the film Parasite by Ooh, oh boy director Bong Joon-ho, uh, a Korean filmmaker who... Who you know, best known to Western audiences probably for Snowpiercer, maybe Okja or whatever, which I never saw. Uh, my personal favorite film of his is a police procedural film, which you can watch on Amazon Prime, called Memories of Murder, which is based fact based. It's based on an actual series of murders that took place, uh, but it's a just one of my favorite police procedurals of all time. But anyway, Parasite is getting tremendous buzz right now. It did win the Palme d'Or at this year's Cannes Film Festival. Um, it's now out in theaters in, in select cities. And um, this is one of the best films explicitly about class and wealth and poverty that I have ever seen. Um, it is a film that... Um, uh, you know, I don't want to to go into too much detail about the plot. Suffice it to say that it, it's about a very poor, a very poor family where uh, two parents, a son and a daughter, and the son gets a job working as the English tutor for the daughter of a very wealthy family, and then things start to happen. Um, um, I will say that it's it's. Um, it is not a, a dry social commentary film. It is a it is a wild ride. It is tremendously unpredictable. It is definitely entertaining. Um, it is, but it is also, especially toward the as it builds up towards its conclusion, it has images of I think such kind of devastating power and insight into into the. 
injust into the injustice of of vast emotional uh of, va- of vast economic inequality and of uh poverty in societies where nobody should be should be poor or should be exploited. It's um, a horror movie though, right? No, it is not. Not though. Oh, the trailer looked frightening to me. Uh it, it's a, it has suspense elements, but it is not mm-hmm. a horror film. Um cool. uh the host, uh, Bong Joon-ho also directed the host, <laughs> which is kind of a an off-kilter horror film. Um yeah. Uh man, yeah. Go see, Great. Go see Parasite. <laughs> Great. My freak out this week is Democracy Now. Um, I have, I listened to them for years uh, and then I go on and off about listening to the news and I've been less so. Uh, and recently I've been like, you know, I really want a little snippet in the morning of like just the headlines. And so I've been like bouncing around a couple of different like podcasts or whatever. Like I listen to NPRs for a minute, even though I fucking hate NPR. Um, and... Yeah, well, and like, so I just listened to a bunch of them and then I came back to Democracy Now! and was like, this is like a breath of fresh air. It's one of the few uh, media, uh, like, it's one of the few news media outlets that are very consistent and bold in their progressiveness. So in the same day, I listened to NPR headlines and Democracy Now!'s headlines and there's like, there are subtle differences. I mean, there's huge differences, but the subtle differences make such a big impact in how it's reported the values of what's reported what what you're getting out of it um you know th- who is sponsoring those episodes versus like being cr- ultimately crowdfunded and listener supported so for example um the other day um not Pierre Trudeau his son Justin 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 Trudeau got reelected as the prime minister of Canada but in a minority government and so on NPR they were like well you know, it's been a tough year for him with some controversies. But in Democracy Now!, they said what the fucking controversies were, right? And I think that's important because the controversies were that he, uh, photos were released of him wearing blackface. Uh, and also that he... Um, Is a corporate shill? What? Uh, the fucking pipeline. He talks all about, you know, b- being bold and fighting climate change or global warming. And, you know, he's like destroying indigenous lands and putting up pipelines and crap. So I think that those little things make a difference and it's been refreshing to like get coverage of global news issues in a way that I trust. Listen, if you were learning about the Tulsa race riots from Democracy Now!, they would straight up be like, Hundreds killed, thousands displaced, and brutal massacre. NPR's headline would be like, ambiguity surrounds <laughs> disappearance. <laughs> uh, white community in shock. Let's talk to both sides yeah. about this issue. Yeah. So anyways, this wasn't me talking shit about NPR, but feel free to ask me about that because I will. Uh, but more shout out, like support Democracy Now! If you want like quality news uh, and segments and stories, uh, you know, check them out. We want to hear from you. Do we want to hear from them? Yeah. I think we hey, want to hear from them. Yeah. You can submit your own freakout at feministfrequency.com slash freakout. That's F-R-E-Q-O-U-T. Thank you so much for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio. Stay tuned for the Freakin' After Party, which is only available to backers of this podcast. You can learn more at patreon.com slash femfreak. You can find us everywhere great podcasts are found. If you haven't yet, go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and all the social medias at FemFreak. 
The show is engineered by Rob Perra. Sarah Norales provides technical support, artwork by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. Join us next week for another feminist dive into popular culture. Thanks for listening. Later. You should sign up for the bonus this week, guys, because I got a hair report. Guys. Not and guys. Everyone. And everyone else. <laughs> everyone of all genders. We've been working on this with Ebony for a few I know, years. I know. I was You've doing pretty doing well good. for a while, but. All right. I'm so excited about that hair report. Hair report. Bye. Bye.